Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Last week, I gave a talk on loneliness, and uh, I had so much feedback about it that I decided I would just give the same talk all over again. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to do. Um, our resident Dharma singer, Amy Manuso, is going to start us off. So you can't talk about loneliness without <coughs> a song. So I'll produce the song. You can. No, no introduction needed, I guess. I just want, I didn't write this song. I don't want to take credit for it. It's a Bonnie Prince Billy song that Michael asked me to sing. <laughs> Stop. 
such a favor if you would blind them. There is absence, there is lack, there are wolves here abound. You will miss me when I turn around. When you have no She could just sing every single time to get us started. <laughs> I'll start uh, with the Globe and Mail. Uh, this is an article that was just uh, written within the last week. Uh, here's what they say In the West, we live faster higher in the air, farther from our workplaces, and more singly than at any other time in the past. Social scientists will be struggling to understand the consequence of these transformations for decades to come. But one thing is clear. Loneliness is our baggage, a huge and largely unacknowledged cultural failing. In Vancouver, residents recently listed isolation as their most pressing concern. More Canadians than ever live alone. Almost one quarter describe themselves as lonely. In the United States, two studies just showed that 40% of people say they're lonely, a figure that has doubled in 30 years. Britain has a registered charity campaigning to end chronic loneliness, and last month Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt gave a speech about the isolated many, calling attention to what he calls a forgotten million who live amongst us ignored to our national shame. It is the great irony of our age that we have never been better connected or more adrift. Anyways, it goes on, as you can imagine. Um, There was a study done a few years ago where um, in the United States uh, there was a, a census poll done and In 1975, the average person had 2.5 friends. And then the study was done again in 2008, and the average number of friends uh, people had was zero. Which is very interesting in an age where we think of ourselves as so interconnected. I noticed talking about loneliness last week that it seems like it's a social taboo to talk about loneliness. Like, sometimes I bring up a topic and people give feedback, but last week, I can't believe how many people said, it's so good you're talking about this. 
Um, so I'll offer a Dharma perspective on loneliness if I can, uh, continuing from what I was trying to articulate last week. Uh, first of all, my first thought about loneliness is actually from when I was a kid. Um, I was lonely a lot as a kid. And I remember one time going to synagogue and the rabbi, who I never listened to ever, I went to synagogue every single week. I loved going to synagogue, but I never listened to what the rabbi said. Anyways, one day the rabbi said, I was giving a talk, and he said that um, God's loneliness resulted in the creation of the world. I couldn't stop thinking about this. God, God was lonely, and his loneliness, not her loneliness, but his loneliness, <laughs> res- resulted in the creation of the world. And then I remember after that, he said something about how, um, so God's relationship to all the creatures that he created um, is the intimacy that those creatures have within themselves, uh, between themselves. And this was the most beautiful thing I ever heard. I didn't believe in God at all when I was small, but somehow this explained everything. And the way I heard it was that... um, I should stop thinking so much about my loneliness. And instead, I should be more like God and do something. But then it made me more lonely because I didn't know what to do. So tonight I want to talk about two sides of loneliness. One is a solitude that's really necessary. And the other is when it's time to leave our solitude and make something new and make a world. Um, We need a vision of solitude that's different from our, our thin idea of being alone. We need a vision of solitude that's much more sacred. And we also need to talk more about stretching ourselves a little bit so that we don't Uh, keep internalizing the kind of surplus negativity that creeps in when we're alone. Because it's natural to feel alone. And yes, sociologists have a lot to say about that. I'm not going to focus on that tonight. But when you're alone, and I said this last week, when you're alone, what tends to happen is Our stories come in about our loneliness. Why don't I have kids? I'm turning 40. Why aren't I taking better care of my parents? How come I'm not with them all the time? How come my parents don't want to see me? Or how come I live alone and I haven't met somebody? And I think there's a time to look at that. But when we're feeling lonely and we start adding all of these cultural stories, who came up with these stories? Who says you're supposed to have a baby and you're supposed to, like, live with someone the rest of your life? That additional story, I think, we have to really watch for. Because I think it prevents us from dropping into a more sacred solitude. Because the truth is, if you've ever really gone through the anxiety 
and the fear that's in being alone, uh, it becomes sacred. And solitude becomes a way of connecting with something deeper than just this narrow me that's feeling sorry for himself or herself. In true solitude, we're not alone and we're not lonely. If it's just you there, it's so narrow. Like the song says, when you have nobody, nobody can hurt you. But you're always in company. It's so important. Did I talk last week about uh, the default motor network? A little bit that I've kind of been obsessed about lately. Can't stop reading about this. I didn't talk about it? Talked about it. In the you weren't here? Oh, I didn't talk about it here? Oh, let me talk about it then. This is really cool. So my friend Willoughby, who was here recently, who's a neuroscientist, has been talking a lot about this. And so I'm, I keep emailing her, like trying to get clear about what this is. But So there's this area of the brain behind the prefrontal cortex, right in the midline of your head. And um, it's, a, it's a newly researched and discovered area. And it's called the default motor network. Google it. It's really interesting. So what they're discovering is that when people are engaged in what's happening in a moment-to-moment way or are intentionally working or trying or involved with something, this area of the brain is quiet. In In an fMRI machine, it's not lit up. But as soon as somebody starts wandering, their attention starts wandering, this area in the brain lights up. And this area in the brain is responsible for self-reference. Okay? So in other words, as soon as you're not paying attention, you're thinking about yourself. You're building a... You're selfing. Right? So in 2010, there was this really interesting study done where these, these two guys from Harvard University called Killingsworth and Gilbert... I just love their names. Like Killingsworth and Gilbert, they could be any, they could do anything. And um, they wanted to study what happens to people when they're not paying attention, but they wanted to do it in 80 countries. They wanted to have at least uh, 250,000 results, and they wanted it across more than 60 occupation groups, which is like nobody could ever afford to do that. Well, they figured out that you could do it with an app. So they created an app that uh, something like a hundred and, I remember a hundred and something thousand people downloaded this app. And through the day, the app would send you a question. What are you doing right now? Are you paying attention? And there would be a spectrum from unhappiness to happiness. Like really, really simple. And then they correlated all the data. And what they discovered was astonishing. of the time, people are mind-wandering. And in case you're not good at math, 47% is half. (laughs) Half the time, your mind is wandering. And then, when people's minds are wandering, it didn't have anything to do 
with whether they liked what they were doing or didn't like what they were doing. They felt unhappy. So there's a correlation between the mind that's selfing, the mind that's building a sense of self, a mind that's not paying attention, and a mind that's unhappy. And we probably didn't need a neuroscientist to tell us this. Although, uh, it's helpful to think about this. What happens when we're not really entering solitude and we're just caught up in the woe is me story? Unhappily surfing Facebook, seeing that your friends have more friends. Or at this time of year, you know, it's easy for loneliness to arise. It's so important how you work with it. With moment-to-moment attention, not following those dead-end stories. But I think if we take that further, is that we live in the most individualistic society ever in human history. And because of that, the structure of our brain is changing. And the problem with the structure of our brain changing is that if we think of this brain or this default motor network as something that's happening more and more in our culture, right, being reinforced, then socially that's the same brain that keeps inventing technology that we sell back to that brain, which keeps us more and more distracted. So what I want to suggest is that, on the one hand, we need a more sacred story about solitude and the importance of solitude. And on the other hand, we have to stretch ourselves so that we're not just you know, going through the same repetitive stories about ourselves or about the world around us, and we actually get engaged and do something. In evolutionary psychology, they say that uh, when we're in a space like this, our brain very, very quickly has four categories that it puts people into. One category is whether you're an enemy or a threat. Another category is if you're a friend and we can do something together. Another category is if you're a sexual partner And the last category, which is the most common one that things get filed into, is indifference. And to me, this is the most dangerous. Because when you combine the fact that 47% of the time we're thinking about ourselves, another way of saying that is half the time we're paying attention to what's not actually happening what's not really there. And if you combine that with the tendency towards indifference, you have a recipe, I think, for isolation in the culture. So all this is to say that our work as practitioners is also to be able to stretch ourselves outside of our comfort zone so we don't fall into this space of indifference 
and mind-wandering. So maybe the ideas we have of community need to be expanded. Developers in the city are not going to build us the community to do this in. Rob Ford is not going to set this up either. We need more subway lines. And dotted along those subway lines, we need clusters of communities with efficient and affordable housing. And all of those clusters have to have ways of uh, offering food to their community. And not only that, people need to be able to bump into each other. And then along all those patterns, we need a grid with renewable energy running through it. The government's not going to build that for us. And one thing amazing about the radical change in the world of food distribution and farmers markets is that it wasn't set up by the government. I mean, I think farmers markets are such an amazing example of how you can make change from the grassroots that sidesteps completely what the government can do. And the problem with the left is that I think the left doesn't really believe anymore that a whole new story is possible. <coughs> but the people who believe a new story is possible are not getting involved in electoral politics. So when I step into that world of people trying to initiate change, just amongst the people that they know, I see an absence of loneliness. I even see fun. I said this in the TED talk I gave, that if you want to find joy in a city, go to a farmer's market. I just came from uh, Alberta. I was in a suburb outside of Edmonton called Sherwood Park. Then I was in Edmonton. Then I was in Calgary. Then I was in a suburb of Calgary in four days. Now I'm home. Missed the blizzard. Um, and uh, one of the things I kept thinking about while I was there is that all of the places, all of the spaces where I kind of inhabited there was no way you could bump into anybody unless you had a car accident. <laughs> the malls are so big that you can't bump into anybody. Do you know what I'm talking about? Bumping into each other. So technology is changing our brains, literally. Technology is changing our brains. 
We're becoming so automatic. How many times did you check your email today? Once. Someone else. How many times did you check your email today? Like, I want to hear some numbers. Four times? I don't have to check it because it automatically comes on the screen of my phone now. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. It's an ongoing process. So, two things that heal that auto... The, the automaticity, is that the word? Uh, one is solitude. We need to have space every week where there's solitude, where we're not checking our emails. At our house, we've sort of instituted a plan that's pretty much working now, which is no media after sunset. The sun goes down, no media. That's it. I've been joking with my friend Matthew Remsky about it because he's trying to do it in his family. And he called me today and he said, guess what? I went to the store to get a, a clock, an alarm clock, and they don't even have any. <laughs> and I said, why are you getting an alarm clock? He said, because I check my phone at night to see like, if the baby's up or whatever, what time it is. And then sometimes I can't help myself. I just have to look to see if there was a text or something. So I think we really need to protect solitude so that we can have some time where we can drop into something that isn't vying for our attention. Gandhi translated non-violence as non-cooperation. <coughs> so I think one of the ways we can practice non-violence is to not cooperate with the corporate structure that's trying to fragment our attention all the time. It used to be that you could only buy things from 10 in the morning until 5 p.m. Now online shopping is taking off. They had, what, Black Friday, on Black Friday, and then what's it called on Monday? Cyber Monday? And what is Cyber Monday? Cyber Monday did way better than Black Friday which is people shopping online from their home. And guess when most of that's happening? Not during working hours. During the hours where we're usually in relationship with each other. So let's use bumping into each other and solitude together as a nexus for building a new kind of culture where we're not seduced all the time by the pull towards fragmented attention. If you can figure out how to fragment someone's attention, you can sell them stuff. It's the secret. And our creativity doesn't come from fragmented attention. And that's the other thing about loneliness is that actually uh, the two places where most people feel exceptionally creative, one is when they pass through the boundary of loneliness and um, um, kind of individual aloneness and can touch that space of creativity. And the other is when you're stretched with other people 
to actually experience another way of being yourself. So creativity is always at the edge of compulsion and inhibition. Always in that space. We feel held back or we feel really compulsive. But as meditators, we can sit in that space. But as citizens, we're being sold something in that space. So that our practice actually is a political practice as much as it is a practice of personal healing. And that's why our practice is rooted in ethics. Ethics is the capacity to imagine something bigger than just your own narrow perspective. And ethics is also the capacity to imagine the other with, in, a, in a much broader way, not just your version of the other. It's the opposite of morality. Morality is when like, you have an idea, this is what's moral. But ethics has everything to do with your imagination. And that's why I always say, your Buddha nature is your imagination. When you're less reactive, what's there? It's a, you have a more creative response. You have a more creative way of relating to what's showing up. But when you're just an automatic pilot, um, everything is going to sad. And uh, my response to the Globe and Mail would be we don't need some... So the Globe and Mail article ends, you can all read it, with this idea that this is a big uh, public health problem, and so the government has to get involved so that because loneliness is going to be a, a public health crisis. It's going to eat into the GDP. It's going to eat into the GDP. <laughs> but I think one of the things we learned from farmers' markets and the joy in farmers' markets is that we don't need big ideas, we really need small ideas. We don't need a big ideology. We just need lots of small ideas. I feel that way more and more because when I was young, I used to always want a big idea. A new story. But actually what we need is a lot of small stories that are linked up with each other. Like cells linked up with each other. And then there's room for a lot of diverse stories. And then that's how you have a change in the culture. And the best part about that, there is not a charismatic male vertebrae at the center of it. Um, I've been reading, it feels embarrassing to say this, but I've been reading Barack Obama's autobiography. Has anybody read this? It's so amazing. So my favorite part in it is, Barack Obama, the theme through the biography is he wants to find out his African 
core. It's really, really important to him. So finally, he goes to Africa. And he's in Africa, and he realizes, I've never had African food. So he goes on a search for pure African food. And everywhere he goes, he can't find African food. He just finds like ethnic food that's been imported and Africanized. And then he has a realization very quickly on the heels of that, that all the ethnic African food has been imported to Africa in the last decade. And, he, and then he has this realization that there is no African food. That's, a, that's pure African food. And then he realized, that's me. I'm not one thing. I'm a plural. I'm a plurality, he says. And this is this insight that completely changes how he thinks about himself. And then this is what inspires him to become a president. And some of you know, you know, his good speeches were when he really spoke this way about plurality and his insight that he is not one thing and that there's not one solution. So, you're not one thing. So when you feel lonely, let's remember that. But also when you're with other people and you're being stretched, let's also remember that we're that also. And right on the other side of that is creativity. Let's remember that when we're feeling lonely. When you start stewing, go do something. But not at the mall, which is more and more becoming the internet. <coughs> Let's stretch ourselves a little bit. Not so individual. Especially when you go home to your family. Does anybody here go home to their family and go crazy? Because, like, whenever I have uh, meetings with students in January, they're, like, insane from their time with their family. My family doesn't understand me. And I always think, well, what's the you that they're supposed to understand? Who is the you they're supposed to understand? And what's there to understand? I remember when I was studying psychology with a maverick psychologist named James Hillman, uh, when he talked about being with family, he always said, people in our culture are so heroic. So when they go back to their family, the heroic side of them uh, doesn't need to exist. And so they regress. And that this is actually really natural. And I always thought that was a great insight. When you're with your family, uh, you're not out in the world being you. What a relief. 
So it's natural that you regress and you go back to whatever age you were when you were spending a lot of time with them. What a relief. So instead of trying to be two people, the adult and the regress person, just go for it and just regress. Like maybe when you go home to see your family, you should wear clothes that are too small. (laughs) You should give up your gluten-free diet. And you should spend more time on your hands and knees. So uh, to end, I just want to try a short little exercise, which will only take a couple minutes. So close your eyes. And I want you to think about some of your identities, like Buddhist, professional, male, female, straight, gay, tall, ill, father, daughter, Just kind of feel, like try on all those identities. your identity around money, your sexuality, who you are with different friends, what it's like when you're alone. What it's like when you're alone and you're okay. And what it's like when you're alone and compulsive. what you're like at a party, your face when you're sleeping, and then take a deep breath and let your eyes open. I find it helpful sometimes, instead of saying the word self, just to say identity. 
and just to see all those identities we have. So many different people in different causes and in different conditions. So to me, that elasticity in our personality is such a good reminder that so much is possible. You're not one thing, even if lonely sometimes. So many things. So I'll stop here. I feel like I've said a lot and haven't followed my notes at all. Um, And I'd be interested to hear what this stirs up for you.